Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody today. Let's see here. Good. Let's uh, pray one more time. Ask the Lord to bless our time together in His Word. Father, Lord, we thank You so much for this moment. Lord, thank You that we have been brought here, Lord, solely on the basis of Your sovereign grace, only because of Jesus. Can a people be redeemed out of the world and brought safely into your kingdom and brought faithfully into your church? Lord, we're thankful that we, as your people, were called to be a kingdom of priests, that we can offer up to you a true sacrifice that is the praise of lips, that we can offer to you songs and spiritual songs of thanksgiving and praise that we can thank You for all of the glories of the Gospel, the glories of the cross. And Lord, as we look upon this subject matter before us, we're grateful that our Savior at the cross triumphed over darkness. And that because of His victory, because of His great work, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Messiah... Jesus, the Lord, the true King of kings. One day will come, He will reign, He will establish His kingdom, Lord, and nothing unclean will be allowed therein, Lord. And we're so grateful that that we, and who are we, O Lord, that we would be numbered in that number. And yet, Lord, such it is that by Your grace and for Your glory, You have saved a people for yourself, to be your special people, a chosen uh, race, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people for your own possession. And so, Lord, today we are so grateful that we can be a part of Christ's church, Lord, that we can be part of his victory and that we will see his vindication. So help us, Lord, now. Give us discernment, Lord. We know that these are dark times that we live in, increasingly dark. And we know, Lord, what Scripture says clearly about the end, that, that in the end there will be tribulation, that there will be distress. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, I've told you these things ahead of time. And so that when they happen, you will know these things because I have told you. And so, Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Word. We ask that you would just give us understanding now. Lord, help us, Lord. Give us the, the help and the aid and the enlightenment of your Spirit, the illumination of your spirit as he helps us to understand uh, your word, Father. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as the subject of eschatology rolls on here, uh, I just wanted to uh, begin today by talking about eschatology in general. And uh, really, though, that is rooted and grounded in the text of Scripture before us. I want to draw your attention to verse 5, because in verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians that eschatology, especially the context in which we're in, was something that they understood already because it was something that he had already told them. He says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? These things pertaining to the revelation of uh, the man of lawlessness, of the coming apostasy that was to come, of the purpose and the aim of Antichrist when he came. And Paul says, I told you these things. I already told you these things in advance. We discussed these things. And I thought, you know what? What a 
important point for us to note, and that is that eschatology is not out of your reach. Uh, That is something that you need to study as a Christian. Don't neglect it because it's hard. Uh, I've got news for you. Theology is hard, period. And eschatology, of course, is no exception. But, you know, Scripture says don't be ignorant of last things. Don't be ignorant of eschatology. And out on that bookstore are a lot of resources for you to go and get equipped. Uh, like one of the books I'd highly recommend that you get would be Anthony Hokema's book, uh, The Bible and the Future. That's certainly a good place to, to start. There are many other uh, books out there. For example, our NIV application commentary. So this is a little bit of commercial here. But uh, I, I'm zealous about this today because th- those books are, 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 are very helpful to try to discern and understand the uh, NIV application commentaries on the Old Testament. I got them precisely on really difficult books of the Old Testament like Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, you know, these, these books that we're really intimidated by as Christians. Uh, they can be understood. And uh, those resources are all out there to help you to understand these things. Let me remind you, there are some aspects about eschatology that are really hard. Uh, that's why you have the pre's, the mids, the post, the ahs, the, you know, you have, you have all the categories, all the camps, you have all the baiting, all the arguments, all the controversies, all the positions, and all the infighting that goes with that. But there are certain things about eschatology that you as a Christian know you know for certain that certain things of eschatology are just non-negotiable. And these are the big ones. So I want to encourage you as a Christian today that the big stuff regarding eschatology is absolutely uh, obtainable and, 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 and is absolutely for your benefit. And uh, it, it does, it's not really difficult to know that in the Bible, the Bible teaches that the world will end. Uh, That's eschatology. Uh, How many of you have been convinced exegetically that the world will end? (laughs) There you go. So there you go. You are eschatological theologians now. The world will end, but what else do we know for certain? Well, we know for certain that there is a heaven again and a hell to shun. We know for certain that Jesus Christ will return to this earth bodily, physically, visibly to this earth. We know that there will be an end-time conflict of some sort between the power of God and the forces of darkness. We know that there will be a final judgment. Uh, so I can go in the proof texts for each one of these things, but that would be another sermon. You know for certain that not only will there be a final judgment, that there will be a final resurrection. That is a great hope for you and I, that we'll be resurrected. And that um, even though one day we will, if the Lord tarries, we will succumb to the effects of the fall, every single one of us, we will succumb to the effects of the fall. We will uh, go the way of all flesh. But we also have the hope that our flesh will be resurrected, that our body will be renewed, that we'll be given glorified bodies, that our body will be glorified in the end. There will be, as Daniel says, either a resurrection unto life or a resurrection unto death. And we know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And by then, 
all the fighting will be over. No more controversy. It will just be enjoyment. It's like Jonathan Edwards when on his dying, uh, on, on his deathbed, they asked him, uh, Jonathan, what are you thinking about right now? He says, I'm not thinking, I'm just enjoying. So in other words, he did all his thinking. <laughs> okay, he's just the greatest theologian America ever produced. He's done thinking. Let the man just enjoy the reality of where he's going. And so it will be in the new heaven and the earth. We'll just be enjoying uh, the glory of the eschaton. So uh, don't get discouraged when it comes to eschatology. It was telling my wife about some eschatology. She's like, my, she's like my theological punching bag, my sermonic punchy bag sometimes when it comes to these things. And I was telling her something about that, about the, the sermon, and she's like, that's just so frustrating to me. It's so complicated. I can't get it. And just like, yeah, I know, but there are certain things that you can get and that you know for certain. And they're the big ones, and they're the important ones. And, uh, and, and those things you can take absolute encouragement from. So, But... In addition to this, the Apostle Paul, uh, because it's a conversation that he has already been telling the church about, it is therefore not surprising to find that there are details about his message here in Thessalonians that he simply leaves out. And so our job today is to interact with one of those details that he just leaves out. And so it's kind of left to us to try to wrestle with what did Paul mean because he doesn't say explicitly what he means. For example, it says in verse 6, you know what restrains him now. Who is him? Well, it is the man of lawlessness. What restrains him now so that in his time he'll be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only, watch this, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What is the what that restrains? What is the he who restrains? And who is the he that will be taken out of the way? We don't know. (laughs) We're not told. Um, At least not here. So if you want to make a dogmatic claim, it will not be out of this text because Paul simply doesn't tell us. Does that mean that everything that I'm about to say, I mean, can I close in prayer now and go home? (laughs) No. Uh, And it's not just conjecture. Uh, The rest of this sermon is not just going to be mere conjecture, but it is going to be an attempt to try to answer. This is a thorny theological crux passage in in eschatology to try to determine the precise identity of what restrains him or who restrains him and who it is that is removed out of the way so that the man of lawlessness can come and can be revealed. And so what is this, uh, what, what is this all about? So let me just give you some arguments that go along with this because the, the details of the text are very important. Notice how the Apostle Paul first, as we look at Antichrist being restrained, First, he's going to be restrained. And then I'm going to talk later about the Antichrist being appointed, and we'll get to that. But uh, he's being restrained, but there's two aspects to this. Number one, uh, Paul speaks in the neuter uh, pronoun. He says, what restrains him? So he doesn't use the masculine or the feminine. He doesn't say he who restrains him or she who restrains him, but he simply says, what restrains him? 
And so there introduces a, sort of a conflict or at least a, a, an issue that we need to resolve because in verse 7, he switches from the neuter pronoun to the masculine. And now he begins to speak of he who now restrains. And so it seems as if at, in one sense we have sort of an abstract idea and the other sense we have sort of a personal idea that is going on. And so the question then becomes what gives? Well, the church has had a plenty of and countless, really, options as to uh, the interpretation here. Um, I'm going to interact with just two, mine, the right one, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then the dispensational position, because the dispensational position is the most popular one, I think, even today. The dispensationalist would say that what restrains them is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit working through the church, uh, is what is restraining the Antichrist from coming. And then, of course, when he is taken out of the way, is speaking about the Holy Spirit being removed through the church. And so uh, that assumes a doctrine of the rapture. In other words, what they would argue, men like uh, uh, John Wolverd, uh, Dwight Pentecost, John MacArthur, uh, the Master Seminary, Bob Jones, DTS down the street here, uh, many, many different dispensational circles. What they would argue is that the way that this will work is that what restrains him now is the Holy Spirit in the church, and when the church is raptured out of here, that is when the restraining will end, and that will unleash the emergence of the Antichrist. Well, now, you already know my position as far as the rapture, uh, I believe that chapter 2, verse 1, right here in our chapter, verse 1 and verse 8 go together. In other words, when it speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus, parousia, that is the same Greek word parousia that is mentioned in verse 8 when it says that when he comes, at, uh, it says uh, that the Lord will slay the Antichrist with his, the breath of his mouth and bring him to an end by the appearance of his parousia, coming. And so what I'm suggesting is that Perusia, verse 8, Perusia, and verse 1 are the same things. Uh, MacArthur and many others have argued that in verse 1, that is the rapture of the church. Uh, when Paul speaks of, in regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together with him, that that is the rapture, and then verse 8 is the second coming. Uh, I disagree with that because I think, and I've labored to do this, you have to go back, but uh, first, uh, the first letter, Thessalonians, and the second letter all present a, a seamless presentation of that day, the day of the Lord, the day that he comes, when he comes, the coming. It's all synonymous. And so I, being uh, somebody who rejects putting a, a sort of distinction between a rapture prior to the physical second coming of Christ, would have to reject uh, at least uh, the, the initial structure of this argument. And so I, I don't think that's, that's correct. Uh, it also does not answer how uh, the, the spirit can be both called a neuter and like a dynamic and then uh, a person, like a single entity, a person if it is the church or the spirit in the church. So there's a lot there. Um, dispensationalists have argued, and, and matter of fact, that after the spirit is taken out of the world, in fact, the world, the tribulation and the people in the tribulation will actually go back to an Old Testament economy where you are no longer indwelt and regenerated by the Spirit of God, but you will be saved on the basis of your testimony and of your martyrdom. Well, that to me is almost a schizophrenic doctrine of soteriology, if you know what I mean. In other words, soteriology is a study of salvation. And what they're saying is that salvation 
uh, is different depending on the time period that you live in. And so if you lived in the Old Testament, you're not indwelt, you're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's a new covenant reality. I personally reject that. Reformed theology has always rejected that. They have always maintained that regeneration is a phenomenon that is congruent from old to new. That's not the difference between old and new. I mean, Moses is the one that was talking about regeneration all the way back in the pages of the Pentateuch when he speaks about having a circumcised heart. That's what that whole thing is about. As a matter of fact, when uh, Jesus actually spoke about the doctrine of regeneration, you remember in John uh, chapter 3, you must be born again, right? What did he tell Nicodemus? Are you not the teacher of all Israel, and yet don't you already know all this, right? Because what Jesus was saying is that Ezekiel taught this. In Ezekiel chapter uh, 36 and in many other places in the Old Testament, regeneration is taught, and I go so far as to say with Peter, Peter chapter 1 verse 11, that believers in the Old Testament in fact had the Spirit of God in them, uh, not just upon them in some sense, but no, 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 I think he was in them. So I don't agree that after the so-called rapture, according to the dispensationalists, that people will go back to an Old Testament economy. And so I, on the basis, on the, on the basis of the fact that I preached a hundred sermons of the book of Hebrews, if I learned anything about the book of Hebrews is that we do not go back to the types and shadows. Okay, that's going backwards in God's redemptive purpose. Uh, others actually argue for a different position. They actually argue that what is restraining Antichrist right now is the state. And so historically, from the beginning of the founding of the Christian, uh, the early church, all the way back to the church fathers, people had this view that perhaps it was Rome as an agent of God who was restraining evil from literally breaking out all over the world and the rise of any Christ that that would result in. Matter of fact, William Hendrickson, uh, just to show you that this view is still uh, in existence today, William Hendrickson actually believed that it is the state power overseen by angels, and he takes that from the book of Daniel, that restrains evil and thus restrains the mystery of lawlessness, thus restraining the Antichrist. So it is the fact that we are governed today by a state that is still somewhat restraining evil, doing its job, even though you and I would probably protest that it's not doing that great of a job. What they're saying is that it's still doing the job that it serves in this age of restraining evil. I don't see that. Uh, I still can't see that. I still don't understand how you go from the state now to having a personal pronoun assigned to the restrainer. You still doesn't answer the question of why does Paul call him a he? He who restrains. And so what's the answer to all this? Well, uh, just to give you my position, uh, just to put, lay my, my cards out there, uh, I think the restrainer is uh, Michael the archangel. That's my, that's my position. Uh, I think uh, uh, if it's not Michael the archangel, I think it's an angel nonetheless. Uh, and so I think when, when you take uh, uh, and you do an entire biblical theology in the Bible, that's what's going on in the phenomenon of restraining all throughout uh, the Bible. And I'll get there in a second. But, for example, you have uh, in the Greek Septuagint, you have a very similar word that's being used here. It's used in, uh, in Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, concerning uh, the restraining of the prince of Persia by Michael the archangel. And here in Thessalonians, the apostle Paul, when he says that, uh, something, some, you know, the Antichrist is being restrained. He uses the Greek word kateko. In the Septuagint, the book of Daniel, the Greek word is anteko. Very similar. 
So G.K. Beale and others point out that that could be a parallel, at least in the same phenomenon, because anteko is a word that literally means to seize, to resist, to hold against, or to prevail against. And so that language is uh, uh, being spoken of there of Michael the archangel who resists the prince of Persia, who is, according to every commentary, some sort of demonic being that is being resisted. John MacArthur disagrees with that. He argues in his commentary on the basis of Jude that angels cannot restrain Satan. Um, Ironically, in my opinion, the refuter of that position is the premillennialist's favorite proof text in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Because uh, when I read that in MacArthur's commentary, I thought, wait a minute, Revelation chapter 20, I'll read it to you now, seems to say the complete opposite. And I saw an angel, Revelation 20 verse 1, coming down out of heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain was in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. So it seems as if, at least in principle, angels can, in fact, restrain Satan. And so I think what's going on as you do a biblical theology of all of this is that everything that you see in the Bible regarding the restraining of Satan, whether it's the resisting of the demons in Daniel, whether it's the casting out of demons by Jesus, whether it's the binding of the strong man by Jesus in his work on the cross or the restraining that's going on right here by the Apostle Paul, I think it is inevitable to conclude that there is an angelic war going on where at times... This conflict kind of goes back and forth. The prince of Persia seems to make some, uh, uh, seems to gain some ground. He seems to get some victory. And then Michael comes in and restrains him and pushes him back, helps Daniel in whatever he's going through prophetically through the visions that God is showing him. Just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Matter of fact, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, one of the reasons why I say Michael uh, is uh, what led me to that is a passage like this. Revelation chapter 12, beginning of verse 7. Listen to what it says. It's almost like take a deep breath here. There was war in heaven. And Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. You see that? back and forth struggle, that cosmic struggle between good and bad angels. And they were not strong enough and there were no longer a place found for them in heaven, that is the demons and Satan. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and the angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power in the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ have come. So, so what happens there, I can't get into all the details of that passage because it's just too much, but it just shows in principle that Michael, at least an angelic being, has the power to wage war with Satan. And if we take Daniel as some sort of parallel, he has the ability to restrain him, to hold him. And so all of it, uh, but that doesn't answer the question of how do we go from a neuter 
to a masculine. And so I'll give you my best shot. I think what's going on is that the neuter pronoun, when it says what restrains him now, is referring to a dynamic, a phenomenon, uh, sort of conceptually capturing what's going on so that ultimately what is restraining the Antichrist is God through his holy emissaries, the angels, or the or an angel. And then when it says, when he is taken out of the way, because see, one of the difficulties is, is if the person taken out of the way is the Holy Spirit, how is it possible to remove the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times, right? And so how can he be removed from anywhere? So that's a d- theological difficulty that is hard to overcome. And I don't think it's meant to be overcome because who is removed is God's agent of restraint, which is, I think, an angel. Not convinced? Won't see me after the service, I suppose. <laughs> These are difficult things, but it reminds us that this restraining influence, whatever it is, is not ultimate. Matter of fact, if we take Daniel as some sort of uh, parallel to all this, this is a remarkable passage, by the way. Daniel chapter 12, perhaps Daniel in his vision saw into the future coalescing with what the Apostle Paul was describing now himself. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now at that time, Michael, another reason why I kind of lean towards Michael, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Now, that's one of the reasons why the prince of Persia, prince, uh, some form of ruler, right? Some, some leader will arise. So prince of Persia, Michael the prince, both share the same title. So the prince of Persia is probably some demonic uh, 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 you know, agent of some kind. But anyway, it says, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Isn't that interesting? So those concepts are all picked up, for example, in the book of Revelation, and I think they are expounded upon. The revelator, John, who has the same spirit inspiring him as as Daniel did, he takes up these concepts of what Daniel saw. Michael, the great prince, he will arise. Arise to do what? Well, Revelation chapter 12 Verse 7, where it says, He will rise to make war with the dragon, and he will cast him down. And then it says, There will be a time of distress. What time of distress? Well, the time of tribulation into which the world will be cast. That time. And it says, And the time of your people, everyone who is found written in the book. What book? Well, Revelation clears that up. It is the book of life. And whose ever name is written in the book of life will be redeemed or will be rescued by God in the end. And so that's the way this sort of intertextual dependence works. Daniel, Revelation, Daniel, Revelation. And then, boom, out comes Thessalonians. You know, just kind of in the way. <laughs> it just plays a part in there. But, you know, it's in there. And I think, I think, as I was studying, I was studying, I was thinking, there is no way in the world that I have time to do what I'm supposed to do with this passage of Scripture. There's no way. Because I have to go to all of these texts, the theologians call intertextuality, and show the dependence and the relationship between all these texts. I got it kind of in my mind. I see it right there. Daniel 11, uh, First Thessalon- Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation 3, 12 and 13, Revelation 20, you know, the binding of Satan and Matthew. All of these texts somehow go together. I know that they do, but... You know, 
John MacArthur speaks about the tyranny of Sunday. You only have so much time before you've got to preach, so sorry. What you're getting right now, if anything, is just a little bit of to, to, to whet your appetite to, to go back into and, uh, and, to, and to try to uh, compare some of these texts for yourself. I told my wife last night, she must think I'm so fickle, because I told her, I, say, I think my favorite book in the Bible is Revelation. No, no, I really do. She's like, yeah, I heard this before. Like, it was Isaiah, and it was Zechariah, and it's just like whatever, you know, whatever uh, high you're on for the week, you know. Uh, but uh, no, but it's true. I mean, as I see Revelation, the way Revelation just draws it all to a close, and what's going on here with Antichrist is literally the culmination of a biblical theology of an angelic battle that has been raging since the garden, since the angel in the garden, the cherubim, stood guard over the tree of life to make war, in a sense, to, make a, a, to put down a, a claim over the way to life. And there was always the anti-Lord in the garden. And ever since, what you see is all these conflicts arising. And so what is Antichrist? Antichrist is kind of like the final scene in the great drama. It's the final unmasking, the great unmasking. Of that old, that's why it says uh, repeatedly in Scripture, that old serpent, the devil, right? That old adversary that has been going all the way through redemptive history. You see him there, the, the sons of, of men come and inhabit with the daughters, uh, the daughters of man. And you see that, what happens there. And then you see the flood. And then you see the Tower of Babel. And then you see the conflict in Exodus as they go down into Egypt. And this, you know, you, you got to split the sea and kill the dragon. And then after that, you have to battle all the enemies of God, the Philistines. And then arises Goliath, this great antichrist crisis on the scene. And this Christ figure has to overcome. And so what I'm saying is that all of redemptive history is pushing to this momentous event right here. Where the final conflict between, I don't say good and evil, because that's almost like an unbiblical dualism. But between the powers of heaven and the powers of hell are all coming to a head. And there will only be one winner. That's not in question. We already know that. Where do we fit in in the story? Right here, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, whatever, whatever conclusions we draw concerning this restraining phenomenon, whoever's doing the restraining, whatever the nature of the restraining is, one thing we know for certain, the restraining that's going on here is limited and it is temporary. It is not an exhaustive final restraining it is a momentary restraint and what is left and what is what is uh, coming is still the unleashing the arrival of the antichrist but during the interim during this sort of inner advent period first coming of christ last coming of christ in between what we have is the mystery of lawlessness already at work and so where we fit in in the story is this we are surrounded by the mystery of lawlessness being at work it's all around us. It's in everything. It's in all. It manifests itself, this mystery of lawlessness. It manifests itself through heresy and sensuality and all manner of immorality and lawlessness in the world. That's what's going on. You know what this sermon is all about? This sermon is all about the sovereignty of God. No, 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 it is. 
And this is where you and I can take great comfort as Christians that that as much as we struggle with the sovereignty of God and as philosophically challenging as it is for us to grapple with how can God be in control if we will set that aside but for a moment and understand that the sovereignty of God is actually a doctrine, a principle of great comfort to you and I. The reality is, is that Christ, that God has always been in control, always will be in control, and He is in control right now. And He is in control of all of the mystery of lawlessness that we see all around us. And um, you see it everywhere. You see it in society. You see it. the spirit of the age. I mean, you just see it. If you've got eyes to see, you see it everything, and you see it in everything. We discussed that in terms of Babylon, this world system, and how quickly it is... Um, Escalating, escalating. This mystery of lawlessness is already revealed. What Thessalonians is giving us, however, is this connection. That the mystery of lawlessness that we see right now is actually stemming from the principle of Antichrist himself. So what happens during the tribulation period? During that time when Antichrist is revealed, what happens is that the mystery of lawlessness will be over. Now we will see who is behind the mystery. It's almost as if the unmasking will take place. Oh, there he is. This is the root. This is the source of all the wickedness and the the evil. And the course of this age is led by this sinister agent. Right now, we can expect for that work to go on and on I mentioned the sovereignty of God and I mentioned the Antichrist being restrained. I also want to point out the Antichrist will also be appointed. Notice what he says, that after the restraining is taken out of the way, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay uh, with the breath of his mouth. Well, this backs up only into verse 6 where it says what restrains himself so that in his time he will be revealed what is that what is in his time well in his time is referring to the antichrist but time is not in his control brothers and sisters it is in god's control so his time is the time that has been appointed to him by god he like i said you know antichrist is like a puppet he is a he, he he is a pawn in the hand of the mass or the master you know orchestrator of all things. He will do his bidding. He will fulfill his plan. He thinks it's his scheme, his plan, his agenda that he's working. But within that, the overarching reality is the sovereignty of God. Why should we be surprised? Look with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter four. Acts chapter 4. See that it's always God's decree. Antichrist is subordinate to the sovereignty of God. That is a comfort to you and I. And that's a comfort. Listen, when the martyrs in Revelation die underneath the sword of Antichrist, what else are they holding on to but that God is sovereign over my death right now? You see? If you don't believe in that, what are you holding on to? Well, 
The servant is not greater than his master. They hated him. They're going to hate you. Jesus said, I told you that. I told you. So that when it comes, you not be surprised why the entertainment industry, the educational industry, the political industry, all the industries, every group and category and every aspect of the system is against you because it was against me. Think about who was against him on that day. Uh, the disciples tell us here. Beginning in verse 25, see the sovereignty of God at work here. By the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a futile thing? You see, God never loses track of history, brothers and sisters. This goes back to Psalm chapter 2. God has never, ever lost track of Psalm 2, verse 7. Never. This is the principle that's at work. It is the futile things, the vain imagination, the rage of the nations. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly, you want to see the fulfillment of it? At least in part. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Why is that important? Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Because it's trying to emphasize it's the king. And they're gathered against the king. That's the anointed one. He is the anointed king. He's the messianic king. And gathered against him was Herod. So much for the people of Israel supporting their Messiah. The very central power of Israel was against him. And Pontius Pilate, there's the rulers of this age, there is a, a Rome who represents that Babylon system of the world, all gathered together against the king, the anointed king, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, in other words, all ethnicities, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There is the sovereignty of God having the upper hand at the most critical points of the conflict when it gets the hardest and the heaviest and the darkest. God is always in control. And He will be in control right here. And the parallel to all of this, because I don't want to steal my own thunder by going into verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11 and so instead, I'll give you a parallel passage to get out of that conundrum. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 to see it again. That as we arrive at this critical juncture that Paul is now talking about, the revelation of Antichrist and the destruction of the Antichrist through Jesus Christ, what is at foot here is no different than what was at work there in Acts chapter 4. Watch with me. Incredible, by the way, this passage. Revelation 17, beginning in verse 14. These will, these will wage war against the Lamb. Who's these? These are the kings of the earth. Apparently, there will be rulers who will be instrumental and influential throughout the world, and they will be united under the beast, under the Antichrist. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But because, excuse me, because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, it's like Psalm 2. I told you, man. 
He is my anointed. I anointed him. I swore an oath that he would sit on Zion and you came up as if you were going to go to battle with my king and now you're dead. And now the time will come for you to be judged. Those who are with him are called, are the called, excuse me, and the chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the, where the harlot sits are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the tongues. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, the world system, and will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and will burn her with fire. See, this is the point where a lot of you guys check out. I don't understand the imagery. Fire, harlots, waters, <laughs> you know. Click, <laughs> you know, right? Because it's just too complicated. This apocalyptic language is way too encrypted. I do not know how to uh, solve the puzzle here, right? It's all image. It's, it's, it's all imagery. It's all apocalyptic imagery. And all of it has significance. But the gist of it is this, is that in the end, what happens is the world system begins to cave in upon itself. These influential rulers who were led by the beast, presumably here, the Antichrist, will cannibalize each other. Uh, it's like a kingdom divided against itself. It cannot stand. And so it's kind of like it's reached its end, right? The heyday is over. Now the infighting is so bad, they end up hating the very system. They end up hating the very system that they bought into. Wow. Talk about deception. You bought in. So much so that somewhere in Revelation, don't ask me, I'm trying to think of it. Somewhere in Revelation, it says these kingdoms, they gave their kingdoms to the beast. They surrendered their sovereignty over to the beast. And now it's almost as if they're having an aha moment going, what in the world did we get ourselves into? It's too late. It's too late. They will burn it all to the ground. And look at verse 18. Why do they do this? Why is all, all this unraveling? For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose. By having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast. Oh, there's the passage right there. Until the words of God will be fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? The woman that you saw is the great city which reigns over the king's of the earth. The great city is Babylon. Babylon is the world system that will somehow be connected to this sinister end time diabolical ruler known as the man of lawlessness, the beast, the antichrist. Why is this going on? Why does God ordain all of this? Why does he allow all of this to transpire? And even now, brothers and sisters, now as the, 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 the mystery of lawlessness is operating even right now under our very noses and all around us, why does he allow it all? He allows it because if we're paying attention to the story of redemption from the very outset, we will understand that this final end time conflict is a conflict for supremacy. Matter of fact, turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Revelation uh, 16. God bless the NASB. Because it interpreted this in a very good way. In verse 
13 all the way down to verse 16, we understand once again what the conflict has been all about. The Bible has been trying to tell us from the very beginning. You know how? Giving us pictures of mountains. Telling us in Isaiah 2, one day, time is coming. The mountain of God will be the highest mountain on the earth. It will crush all the other mountains. We don't get that because we're like, huh, mountains, what? Ain't no mountains in Texas. What about us? There ain't no mountains in Texas, but what God is talking about here in the ancient Near Eastern world is at the top of mountains, that's where gods dwell. That is where, that's, they're called the Mount of Deity. That is, that is what, uh, you know, Babel was all about. That is what uh, the Antichrist in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 and uh, Isaiah chapter 14, that's what he wants, remember? He says, I will ascend to the mount. See what I'm saying? He wants to be the king of the hill. But God is going to show him, no, 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 no. I'm going to bring you to the mount. I'm going to bring you to the hill. And then I will overcome you there. I will, I, will, I will triumph over you there. And that's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to uh, 16. Oh, man, there's so much here, dude. I just... Basically, the world will be gathered for war. And what, where would that take place? Look at verse 16. They gathered them together to the place in Hebrew, which is called, what does your Bible say? Not Armageddon. Harmageddon. Go get your NASB, man. <laughs> and then it has a footnote. Some early manuscripts say Armageddon. What's the difference? Well, Armageddon means the mountain of God. And so what is he saying? He's making the final statement. See, Armageddon only makes sense if you've been following the story from the beginning. If you don't follow the story from the beginning, then who cares about Armageddon? It means everything. The entire eschaton is consummated at Armageddon. Don't you see? Armageddon is an icon of the final conflict for total, global, universal, cosmic supremacy. That's what Satan wants, and that is what he will never have. He doesn't just want you to get you to get, you know, take a bite of the apple or the fruit. I always tell myself, I contradicted my own pet peeve. It's not an apple, in other words. The Bible doesn't say apple. It's just this fruit. I became the very thing I hated. No, just okay. Satan understands all of this. And this whole eschatological theology, this whole concept here of the emergence of the Antichrist, all of it, and the conflict between probably Angel, probably Michael, restraining Satan so that he doesn't unleash the beast on the earth. All of this should be an evangelistic warning to us What's wrong? Why does, why does, what, what motivates Satan? Rage. What motivates his rage? The sovereignty of God. How do we understand that sovereignty? He has a very little short time. I think that's what motivates the same sinister things in the world that are operating. Those people that stand on those red carpets underneath those lights filled with 
plastic surgery and Botox and everything else. Why do they keep pumping themselves full of chemicals? Because they know their time is short and they are trying to live it up. And that's what drives them is the passion of their lusts. And they're, what they're saying is I, want to, I need to get my fill because I know the witness in my heart tells me and the conscience that God gives me is that I'm headed for judgment and I don't want it to end. And that's exactly what Satan is. He is vain. For this reason, O oh heaven, rejoice because Satan was thrown out of heaven. But what does it go on to say? Woe to the earth because the devil has come down to you. And he has great wrath. Why? Because he knows he only has a short time. You and I live in an age that will end so quickly. When we get to heaven, everything we sing about, when we get to heaven, man, this life will feel like a dream. It would be like, what was that all about? <laughs> and for endless, 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 endless ages, we will just bask in the glory of God. Can you feel it? Do you enjoy it? Do you live for it? Because it's the same thing. It's like that future eschatological reality should also influence us in the present age as well. It should also motivate us like it motivated the Apostle Paul who said, look, if you really want to know who I am, I am a citizen of heaven. That's where my citizenship really is. That's where my interests are. Kingdom interests. But woe to the earth and all brothers and sisters and my friends who are in here who are not yet my brother, my sister in Christ. You could be young, you could be old. I don't know. But this woe is for you. Because what this woe is telling us is that the, the mystery of lawlessness, the principle that moves around the sinful system that we live in is actually tethered to the evil one. And so what we're seeing now is like the tentacles of the evil one wrapping around everything already, even though he has not arrived. And therefore... Consequently, therefore, the Antichrist descent on the world gives rise to that final conflict. And that conflict will consist of an unparalleled deception. A soul-damning, soul-destroying, spiritually anarchy, spiritual anarchy rooted in a satanic Deception. And so, therefore, once we, now that we know, now that we know what the mystery of lawlessness is all about, we who know these things, we know where the victory comes. We know where the power really is. What's the lesson to be learned here? If you're not saved, man, this world is headed to a really scary place. And you need to get saved. Okay? I just, you know, go back to the good old revival days. Get saved. Do business with God. 
It's like I tell the young students at UNT, they think I'm an idiot. I tell them, go and thrust yourself at the foot of the cross. Go in your dorm, shut the door, kick everybody out, and do business with God, and don't get out until you know you're right with God. That's reality, man. That's living in reality. This is not living in reality. Can you believe it? People are going into a Christless eternity for a bowl of soup, y'all. It's terrible. But for the Christian, the lesson to be learned is that our power does not come from anywhere else. Think about it. Imagine yourself. You are at the very end of the tribulation. Man, it is popping off all around you. The kings of the world are awakening. They're betraying one another. The world is in total chaos. I think that's what Revelation is, is, is saying. And, and what are the precious saints on earth supposed to do? Are they supposed to run for office? No. I told you this before. They're supposed to not love their life unto death by faith in Jesus Christ who will come and destroy the Antichrist, the beast. It reminds us, in other words, brothers and sisters, where our power comes from. It doesn't come from politics. It doesn't come from technology. It doesn't come from our networking skills and our entrepreneurial... No. It comes from the power of God. And God has always put His people in a position where they are backed up against the wall. Hasn't God given us enough stories and pictures? And haven't we seen enough episodes where like the Apostle Paul said, He put us in a place. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. We knew we were going to die. And the reason why God put us there is so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And that's where God is putting the church today. He's putting us in an evil world system such that we will be probably relegated to some form of total ostracization, cultural ostracization, a digital ghetto where we can't do anything unless you bow the knee to the LGBT, X, Y, and Z, whatever. Fine. Fine. And come what may... We know where our power comes from. We know where our deliverance comes from. And uh, I want to go for another hour, but I won't. Because we've got to use this. And we've got to proclaim the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God. That we are more than conquerors. When you are in Christ. Not that this puts you in Christ. Okay, so this is a reflection of the fact that you are in Christ. Praise God by faith. And that by virtue of your union with Christ, you're safe. You are in the cleft of the rock. You are safe. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Safe in Christ. You know? While the hurricane is happening all around us, we are safe there. Trisha wants me to buy her one of those steel things, you know, in the garage. For, you know, tornadoes. It's like, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. We're safer than that. Even though the storm around us is worse than that. Worse than a tornado. Worse than a hurricane. Father, you are a shelter in the storm. And you protect us. As scripture says, 
For those who are in the Son, the evil one does not touch him. We could not be in a more safe place than when we are in union with you, with your Son, Jesus, by faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would cast all of our hopes on the gospel. Look completely away from ourselves. Trust in nothing owing to our own effort and power and strength and deeds, even deeds done in righteousness. But look only and exclusively to the alien righteousness and the alien power that has the power to deliver, to transform, and to advance us into the kingdom of heaven. We pray all these things in the name of your triumphant Son who is coming back to judge the living and the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.